Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Leadership on Mission podcast. I am your host, Chad Williams. And on today's episode, we have a very special guest with us. We will be interviewing the author of the book, Character Matters, Shepherding in the Fruit of the Spirit, Aaron Menikoff. Aaron is a pastor here in the Atlanta area. Uh, He's also a good friend. And I think you'll be really helped by this particular interview. There's a lot of really good content in it. Uh, Aaron shares a lot of practical wisdom uh, in this particular interview, and he shares his story a little bit. He's got a really cool story. So I think you'll find the interview helpful. Uh, Let me encourage you also, uh, buy this book. This book is one of the very best books I've read in 2020. I've been recommending it to leaders. I've been recommending it uh, to, uh, to people who are just wanting to grow in their faith as well. It is a phenomenal book and it can be helpful to anyone, literally, wherever you're at in life. Wonderful book. So uh, listen to the interview and then go buy this book. It's available everywhere. It's produced by Nine Marks and Moody Publishing. Uh, make sure you get a copy of this book. So with that, let's dive right in. Well, joining us on the podcast today is a good friend of mine. He is the senior pastor of Mount Vernon Baptist Church here in the Atlanta metro area. You can read his work at Nine Marks at the Gospel Coalition, among other places. And he's also the author of the new book published by Nine Marks and Moody entitled Character Matters, Shepherding in the Fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Our guest today is Aaron Menikoff. So glad to have you on the podcast, brother. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Chad. Yeah. So before we dive into the book, uh, I want to talk about your journey specifically into vocational ministry. I I have a couple of questions about this. It's not a typical one. Uh, It's not a typical journey into vocational ministry. Uh, But in the book, you mentioned that prior to entering ministry, you worked in the world of D.C. politics Mm -hmm. for the late uh, Republican senator from Oregon, uh, Mark Hatfield. He was a senator for 30 years, I believe that's that's right. Correct. After being governor. Wow. How did you wind up in the realm of political leadership? Well, you know, just to be clear, I was um, I, I went to D.C. as an intern. So so many so many people who go into politics do have an experience interning for a Congress uh, congressman, a senator, uh, maybe in a think tank. And I went thinking I don't know what I want to do with my life. Uh, Mark Hatfield's office was advertising these internships on the wall of the economics department at the University of Oregon. I thought, well, this would be a good way for me to get some experience while I'm figuring things out. And um, I came to really, really respect Mark Hatfield. I mean, everyone in Oregon respected him at some level, Republicans and Democrats. But it turns out that he was attending Capitol Hill Metropolitan Baptist Church. And uh, so oh, we, well. we immediately had kind of a, a rapport. Uh, he is a Christian. And, um, and eventually I was able to get on staff with him and uh, was just with him until he ended up not seeking reelection in 1996. Mm. Now, were you already a Christian during your time in D.C. at this point? I was uh, I'd been a Christian about four years. So I had been God save me. Uh, my senior year of high school or around the summer after graduating high school. And I spent four years at a church called Faith Center, which was a four-square church in Eugene, Oregon. 
Uh, not a lot of spiritual growth there. I, I learned a lot. I was discipled by a dear brother, but um, uh, I'd say I was a pretty immature believer when I moved to D.C. Uh, when I did. How did your time in D.C. change the way you thought about character and leadership and that connection? That's a great, that's a great question. I mean, uh, I lived in D.C. with the uh, Lewinsky scandal. Um, right. I, I lived in, uh, you know, when you serve in politics, you're certainly aware of uh, politicians whose ambition is to be known. So you and I are accustomed perhaps to this temptation in the world of, the, of, of pastors. But, you know, back in the day when I was there, you know, you knew the politicians who were constantly putting out a press release, you know, sharing what they did in such a way that really drew attention to themselves and, um, and so I was aware of that. That was buzzing all around me. And uh, the guy that I worked for, Mark Hatfield, had a sterling reputation, a good character. And I remember, in a sense, kind of being proud of that. Like, the guy I work for is humble, a man of real integrity. And so I would say both my employer at the time, the senator from Oregon, but even my new pastor on Capitol Hill, Mark Dever, both of these, these two Marks, um, just two really godly men. And so I'm really thankful to have them both as examples in my life of godly character in Washington, D.C., of all places. Uh, you know, and, you know, Washington just sadly is not known as a place of uh, men full of godly character. Sure. So you talked a little bit about your experience um, there in Washington on the Hill. Uh, how did the transition from politics to the pastorate happen? Now, you've mentioned a little bit about uh, your time at Capitol Hill and Mark Dever and uh, the connection between him and, and, and uh, the senator from Oregon that you, you worked for. But how did that transition? When did you feel that call uh, to, uh, to pastoral ministry? Well, long before I ever experienced a sense that I might want to be a pastor. I was bowled over by this church uh, uh, in, in Washington, D.C. I'd never been a part of a church like this. And you got to understand that, you know, Capitol Hill Baptist at the time was very small. Um, I was new to expositional preaching. It was all very new to me. But I would go to the Hart Senate office building after I got a job. And I was just amazed that I had this job working for Mark Hatfield in the United States Senate. Uh, I was writing speeches. I was working on legislation. And I thought, this is the best job that I could ever possibly imagine. And then I would follow it up with, but I love my church even more. Mm. And that really, I just never forgot thinking that. So when a couple of things happened, when my senator decided not to seek re-election and when uh, the church grew enough that they were able to hire uh, a pastoral assistant, those two things happened at the same time. And my young Christian mind said, man, is the Lord opening a door here for me? And so uh, I was willing 
the church was willing. And I thought, I'm going to give this a couple of years. By that time I was married, I thought, let's give this a couple of years. And, um, and that's how I first entered into ministry, if you will, without a long-term commitment to vocational ministry. Mm. So how did you wind up in the suburbs of Atlanta pastoring a church that was being revitalized? Uh, and you mentioned this, you go into great detail in the book about the challenges you were facing, mm-hmm. uh, the leadership hurdles you were you were overcoming there and, and the unique graces you've seen and, and how God has brought that church to where it is today. Mm-hmm. But walk me through how you wound up in Atlanta, of all places. Well, first, I want to say how much respect I have for you as a guy who planted a church. And I love your story. And I trust, I just want to interview you. And you can share your story, if you haven't already, about planting a high view. Uh, being at at Capitol Hill and watching uh, the Lord use Mark Dever and others to revitalize that congregation, and then going to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and watching the Lord through a small group of men and women revitalize Third Avenue Baptist Church, I, I just felt like I had a lot of experience just witnessing churches be revitalized. I was part of it myself. That's what I knew. And the thought of, um, of planting a church starting from scratch, it, 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 it barely entered my mind. And so when I started looking for congregations, established congregations to, to pastor, uh, I was interested in Oregon, but I also, through my supervisor at Southern, through uh, through various recommendations, had heard about Mount Vernon in Atlanta. And uh, I was excited about the thought of being in a big city. Um, and uh, over time, you know, my heart uh, for the church grew. But yes, it, it certainly is, is the last place that I expected to be uh, in, the, in the Bible Belt. But I think when you, when you see that how, how much, uh, how God moves people around, like sometimes it's not so much where we want to be, but where God places us. I mean, we know that's true theologically, but I, I started to feel that in a way. Like, I really need to be open to where God is opening a door, especially if I'm not going to be planting a church. And he opened uh, the door widely here for, for me and my family in Atlanta. Mm. Really exciting to see what God's done uh, just in the time that we've known each other. Uh, at, at Mount Vernon, we, we were talking about this before we we started recording. Uh, I've uh, been friends with Aaron for for eight years, and uh, that's uh, also uh, about how old our church is. And, and one of my, my one of my favorite Aaron Minikoff lines, uh, we were we were actually uh, this brother was kind enough, him and another uh, brother uh, from his church were kind enough to come and visit our. I think it was our second location. And we were meeting in a storefront and we were meeting in the back of the storefront. So there was like garage doors and everything. And and I remember, man, I remember this so vividly. I remember you saying, this looks like a grunge pottery barn. Like I've never, <laughs> I've never forgotten. That's how you described the storefront. And, and well, yeah, but my, so my, my church had more of the Ethan <laughs> Allen look. So oh, no doubt. No doubt. The yeah, absolutely. Brand, the pottery barn was attractive. <laughs> the, the grunge pottery barn 
that just nailed it. And, and if any of you have ever seen this, it, it's, that's so perfectly described. And I've uh, had many people who have said, yeah, that's actually exactly what it felt like a grunge pottery barn. Tell us a little bit about how this book came about. Yeah. I know you go into it in the book. You, you talk a little bit, you kind of set it up, but uh, share with us how this book came to be. Well, there's a very, uh, there's a very uh, specific incident where uh, I had, we had brought on a brother to be a pastoral assistant at Mount Vernon. And, um, you know, it was time to really encourage him to seek the office of elder. And uh, he was on staff, but he was not a pastor. And part of the process was, a well, we had our annual performance review. And this brother was just really uh, honest in his performance review that he it would be difficult for him to serve with me as an elder because there were so many personal conversations where he observed me being harsh in my language. Um, sometimes in a conversation with someone, I could come across a bit like a prosecuting attorney. I've got all these questions and I know where I'm going. Maybe I'm trying to lead you a certain direction. And he said that was very hard. And he, he wasn't being mean. I mean. There was nothing spiteful. He was just being honest. And I was so thankful. And so that's when I said, well, why don't you pick a couple other elders that, you know, you'd really like to work through this with. And let's the four of us sit down and, and talk through this. And, uh, you know, what, what really took me aback by that whole experience was the fact that I honestly had no idea that I was harsh. I mean, if you had asked me what my sin struggles were, I would have said, well, you know, I think, you know, at times I can be, I can struggle with pride, struggle with lust, you know, struggle with laziness, but harshness never even registered on the Richter scale. And that opened my eyes to something that is so obvious. Like sometimes we don't know our own sin. And uh, the folks at, well, Jonathan Lehman at Nine Marks heard me tell this story, asked me to write an article on gentleness, which is, of course, is one of the pieces of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And that led to a series of articles at Nine Marks that were expanded then into this book. And what a, what a wonderful experience for me. You know, as uh, as I was maturing as a pastor, sure. to be forced to think about my own sanctification, it was great. Yeah, in the book, you address a topic that I've heard you personally talk about a lot, and so I've heard it in conversations, I've heard it in talks you've given, and so I know it's a topic that's that's very near and dear to your heart, and I find it very helpful personally when I think about it, uh, which is the, the the concept of slow growth. Mm-hmm. And you, you go into, um, in the book, you, you mention why we should pray for slow growth in our churches as pastors. And just for our listeners, one, um, what do you mean by slow growth? Like, how do, you, how do you quantify that? What does that actually look like? Uh, and then two, how could something growing slowly in the case of a local church uh, help develop the character of the leaders that are there? Mm -hmm. Well, by slow growth, I I simply mean um, if you've got a church of 25 people and you desperately want it to be a church of a thousand people, your heart may say, Lord, would you just bring 200 people next Sunday? And your, your heart or your mind needs to say no. You know, like, Lord, do what you will. 
but please spare me from that. The reality is for most of us, our churches don't grow like that. So when I say pray for slow growth, uh, it's a provocative title. Um, with very few exceptions, churches tend to grow slowly anyway. And so I feel like I'm speaking to 98% of the pastors who are experiencing so slow growth. And this part of the book is a way to say, um, like, embrace that. Like God may actually be sparing you from the the pride of having a church that grows too fast. He may be sparing you from the burdens of having to shepherd more people than you're ready to handle. And frankly, he may be giving you exactly the number of people that you're sort of competent to shepherd as, as it is. So I certainly experienced that. I don't know how to quantify it, but at Mount Vernon, you know, over the years, uh, you know, we we grow. We have a few visitors. I'm in a, I'm in a big city, so we always have visitors. But you know, we we've never had 30, 40, 50 people joining us on a uh, on an every other week, uh, every other month members meeting. It's just been slow, steady growth over the course of 12 years, and that's been good for my soul. I think it's you know I've been it's humbled me. You know, it's not not like I'm going to get behind the pulpit and everyone in Atlanta is going to want to come hear me. Like, praise God for that reminder. And that's just a good thing. That's a good thing to know. Yeah, that's very helpful. Uh, I, found, I found the chapter that specifically deals with being kind uh, to be helpful. And you mentioned this earlier, uh, but I wanted you to unpack it, what it might look like. Uh, because you mentioned specifically that the, the sin that was being exposed in your own heart uh, by this, this brother uh, that uh, was around you and leading with you and alongside you was harshness. And so in light of that, what are some things that a pastor struggling with harshness, I think you mentioned a couple, but but tell us what harshness looks like in the life of a pastor. And, and how do you think harshness uh, is formed? Like w- what leads to a harsh spirit with those you lead? Uh, what are some things you can be doing from a soul care perspective uh, in your own heart uh, to uh, to war against that before it's it's really manifesting in terms of how you lead others? What a great question. Um, a, a pastor is often accustomed to people listening to him. I say always accustomed to people listening to him. And there's something about standing behind a pulpit and having a crowd of people, whether that crowd is 15 or 1500, they are listening to you. And I think that 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 experience of being the person speaking can bleed over into private and small group conversations where you have this expectation that people are going to listen to you. And as a result, you may be quick to interrupt people before they're finishing their sentence. I think that's an example of harshness. I, I'm not trying to impugn the motives of someone who does that. I can't be sure that that's, you know, harshness in their heart. But I, I think that is a mark of, of of harsh behavior. Perhaps it's impatience as well. You you feel like you know what they're going to say, or you know where you want this conversation to go, and it's going to be a lot faster for you to just take the bull by the horns and take it there. Now, I think that's harshness. You may perceive as the pastor that you thought through this issue up, down, right, and left, 
and you're you're the best qualified to make a decision. And so you're going to plow through people with other ideas, uh, other thoughts, and you know that could be harsh. I mean, there's so many there's so many ways that I think it can manifest itself. But I I tend to be thinking mainly about this kind of interpersonal communication wrapped up in that could be wrapped up in the the pride of a pastor who expects to be heard, who expects to be deferred to, or in all honesty, who's trying to prove himself to prove that he has the chops to lead a church. Yeah, and one of sure. the ways culturally that you prove that you have the chops is by commanding a room. There's nothing wrong with commanding a room. I mean, some people don't even, they're not even conscious of it. They're just, they just do it naturally. And that's fine. Uh, but one who's a Christian needs to do it like Moses and ultimately like Jesus with the kind of gentleness that is you know, the mark of the Holy Spirit. Among the, it's funny we're talking about harshness, but among the, uh, the tribe, uh, theologically that that uh, you and I are both probably more closely associated with, uh, whether it's the gospel-centered movement, uh, the young restless and reform movement that that grew up and isn't young and <laughs> anymore, whatever. Um, among churches that tend to, tend to lean the way we do theologically, uh, tend to be uh, complementarian. Um, there has been countless. It's one of the reasons I think this book is so timely, in so many different ways. There's been countless um, failings, very public failings, uh, from those uh, in our tribe. Uh, whether it's uh, an abusive uh, situation where where people feel abused, used. Uh, whether it's a, a harshness that's never checked that becomes something much, much more dangerous to a congregation. We've just seen so many of these types of cases. I'm, I'm curious from, from your perspective of having a book on this, what fruits would you like to see more of within the gospel-centered movement, within uh, churches that maybe lean Reformed, um, what, young pastors, uh, you, you spend so much of your time. I know you've personally invested in so many um, pastors. I know that pastors are a big uh, thing with with Feed My Sheep conference that you host uh, mm-hmm. annually and, and so many other ministries that you do with Great Atlanta Baptist Network and so on and so forth. So I know pastors are on your heart. I know you care deeply about them. Um, what would you like to see more of in terms of which fruit of the Spirit would you like to see more of? Well, I mean, if I could, before I answer that question, I want to make it clear that though I agree the book is timely, uh, certainly I don't know what generation that couldn't be set in as well. Uh, wherever you have, you know, people, you're going to have fallen sinners, and there's always going to be leaders who fall. Um, but I didn't write this book in direct response to leaders falling around me. If anything, I wrote it because it's so tempting to think, look at all those leaders falling around me. I'm so glad I'm not them. Sure. You know? And, yeah. and I think the great irony is that you can think you're all that and, you know, but maybe there's just some real subtle ways that your ministry isn't what it could be, or you're not who you could be without some self-examination. Um, and I do think that that, that is a good message for a, a tribe that is very theologically minded and very keen on on having sound doctrine, I think there's a temptation to to sort of put 
this type of self-reflection uh, to assume it and not really focus on it. Uh, but to answer your question more directly, I don't know that I, I don't know that I can single out one one uh, single piece that I would say we ought to really focus on. Um, I mean, patience, patience is so crucial for pastoral ministry for the reasons we were talking about before. Um, I mean, patience is tied up with contentment. Contentment isn't a fruit that I mentioned in the book, but I don't think that Galatians 5, 22 is exhaustive. So I do think contentment is a piece of the fruit of the spirit. It's, it's wrapped up in, 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 in patience. I think that faithfulness is, is especially important for a pastor. I'm just keeping, you know, keeping your eye on the prize, be faithful, preach week in and week out. Don't expect it's got to be something big. Just be faithful. I mean, we hear that a lot, just be faithful, but it is, I mean, it's a, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, I love to see joyous pastors. Not all of us feel very joyful. And I think that there's a generation of pastors that maybe they feel guilty that I'm not feeling as much joy as I should be feeling. And that's why I say, if you want joy, look to Christ. You know, don't look to joy, look to Christ. Uh, I think our congregations need pastors who look like they really love Jesus in their own, in their own unique ways. So, but man, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. They're just all so crucial and so basic. Yeah. Some, some of the, the fruits of the spirit, some of the chapters dealing with, with, with particular fruits, um, I found uniquely helpful given the climate and the culture we're pastoring in. I guess I would say um, more than uh, a lack I'm seeing necessarily in the in pastors, just mm-hmm. a, ne- a, a needed emphasis on, for example, gentleness. I, I'm not sure um, that I hear a lot about that. Like I hear a lot about that fruit or I get a lot of questions about that fruit, this, this idea of being gentle and that 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 is not a form of weakness. Um, I, I, I tend to think that there are unique ways that in manifesting the fruits of the Spirit, pastors can, can hold up something different from the culture, uh, from the media, from the, the, the way we interact with one another. That, that is uniquely powerful. And, and, and I found, some of, I, found uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, kindness uh, being something that just being kind. I mean that it, it, it's it's it, there's a lot of things we're assuming. I think, and I think that's a that's an important takeaway I had from the book. I'm assuming too much mm-hmm. uh, of my own soul. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I'm not I'm 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 not pressing in on. Am I seeing these things? Um, and so uh, so I found the book unique uniquely helpful, and it's a very honest book. Uh, and I, I really appreciate the honesty. Um, you're, you're very, um, you're pretty good at self-deprecating humor, anyway. But um, there's uh, there's a lot of really honest soul bearing here that a pastor uh, like myself was really was really ministered to in, and, and I certainly certainly wanted to commend you for your honesty. That's not easy uh, to do, mm-hmm. um, but it but it is uh, it was I did find it uniquely helpful. What do you look for when it comes to character as you shepherd a flock and as you uh, pour into young leaders, 
what do you look for in emerging leaders, uh, whether they be elder candidates, deacon candidates, ministry leader candidates, whatever it might be, uh, small group leaders, what look for in terms of character manifesting? Like, what do you look for? Like, what are the what are the things that if they are kind, what are you going to look for? What are you going to see? How are they going to interact in a meeting, for example? Um, what are some things you are always on the on the lookout for in the lives of emerging leaders in your church? Well, I'm I'm looking for people who 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 love people. They they love people. They don't see people as projects. They don't see people as. Um, you know, tools to help them accomplish some goal. They genuinely love spending time with people and helping and serving people. So I'm definitely looking for that. Um, This isn't what this book is about, but I really am looking for brothers who love the Word of God. And um, I love it when a brother is able to, to ask me, like, Aaron, how are you doing spiritually? Like, they don't assume that uh, I don't need to be asked that question. Now, certainly there's a way to do it that can be a little proud, like, you know, look at me. I'm, you know, I'm trying to disciple the, the pastor. I, I don't mean that, but I just mean people who are just genuinely concerned about others. And, um, but are concerned with a, with a biblical mindset. You know, I, um, I remember years ago, sitting outside with Andy Davis, the pastor of First Baptist Durham, and he was mulling over a piece of scripture. And I remember him asking me, what do you think about this text? And I just thought, what a joy to be sitting here with this man. And what's on his mind is the Bible. And he's going to bring me into his life by talking to me or or just engage in conversation about the word of God. So I'm definitely, you know, I love to see that in young men who may one day be leading congregations of, of their own. Um, you know, individuals who are reaching out to people who don't look like them, they might be a different age. Um, they might be a different ethnicity. They just don't seem bound by that. They are simply seeing to, to serve those who are marked in the image of God. I mean, so many great things we could say about people. But yes, yeah, since I'd say since reflecting on the fruit of the Spirit, um, I can't help but be more thoughtful about, you know, areas I still need to grow in and areas that other people need to grow in as well. It's inevitable. Yeah. Final question for you. As you continue longer in ministry, how has your awareness of your own character deficiencies developed over time? Uh, like what fruits of the spirit do you see more of in your life now and which ones are you more concerned about when you don't see, like how, how does that work for you as mm-hmm. you continue to, to learn and grow as a disciple of Jesus first and foremost? And then, and then of course as a pastor and leader. Well, the, the, the sad truth is, you know, gentleness is what started this whole thing off. And as a, as a husband and as a father, I'm just, continually aware of my need to pray that I would be more gentle in my speech. Um, I talked about joy a, a, a minute ago. I mean, I am, when I am meditating on justification by faith alone, my heart just sings for joy. And I want to grow in 
in showing that to others. Uh, I want people to see the joy that I genuinely feel because I know who Christ is and I know what he did. Um, you know, this is not a piece of the fruit of the spirit that I talk about in my book, but, but compassion, you know, being able to hear someone else's story and not just want to fix it, but to genuinely sort of be in it with them. I mean, I think that's a gift of the Lord. Some people are, 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 are just overflowing with compassion. And um, sometimes I think maybe I have less compassion because God protects me in a sense to help me deal with lots of really hard cases sure. without getting personally wrapped up. And yet I'd love to be able to, to feel more, be more compassionate, even as I'm, I'm trying to help solve a problem. But you know, it's not like the book was written because I'd solved these nine, you know, these nine virtues. I mean, this is just the Christian. These are the ABCs of the Christian life that we're not to take for granted. And, you know, that's what I'm hoping the book does. I'm hoping that the book lands on the desk of, of theologically sound brothers and a sister could read this book as well. And they say, oh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to neglect my own heart. And um, and so, you know, every, every day of the week, I'm praying, for, as, I, as I pray for myself, I pray for a piece of the fruit of the Spirit that I would grow in this area. Well, brother, the book is uh, a blessing. The book is entitled Character Matters, and it is available everywhere. Uh, Aaron, what a blessing it was to have you, brother. Thank you so much for being on Leadership on Mission today. So happy to be here. Thank you, Chad.